the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, talking about uh, the purge and uh, the accusations of white supremacy lurking around uh, every corner by those in all of the uh, elite centers in the West, academia for a long time, media, now, frankly, the halls of power in D.C., arts and entertainment, more so than ever in the sports world, which, of course, uh, I would include in arts and entertainment, but often people don't, so I wanted to make them an explicit category unto themselves. And uh, the question is, you know, the Ibram Kendis and the Robin DiAngelos and the others that we've talked about, is this uh, just a hustle for their professional advancement and pecuniary interests, or is there something more dastardly afoot? And even if it's just about uh, the money, uh, is it something that they can control so that whether they were just thinking about it as a moneymaker, it uh, doesn't mean that it can't spiral into something much more destructive to society more generally? To help us with that question or those questions, really, we're pleased to be joined by Samantha Maitra, doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. Samantha Maitra, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, so you wrote this piece, uh, The Dark Days of Higher Education are here over at nationalinterest.org. And and you explore this question a little bit based on some of the more recent examples of the sort of identitarian silliness on college campuses with getting rid of Chaucer after getting rid of Shakespeare and so on and so forth. And the question is, does the line between a professional hustle and something more ideological, does it even ma- does it exist, number one, and does it matter if it does exist? It's a combination of both factors. In, on, on one hand, you're right, there are a certain amount of ideological people who are in every discipline in academia. I mean, from the 90s onwards, this group of people kind of like, you know, had this interdisciplinary studies, which mixed normal disciplines with their own kind of ideological uh, stuff. And then they got into every single department and then they started controlling the funding, the scholarship new students, interactions, new PhDs, self-referential journals. And that is one of the way of how they kind of like got control of these disciplines. On the other hand, universities in both the United Kingdom and the United States function in a normal bureaucratic way. One of the research that we did for Martin Center, for example, found out that there has been a 221% rise in administration at universities compared to a 10% rise in faculty. And that is an interesting factor because at the end of the day, bureaucracy functions in a very bureaucratic way. So when they see all these new kind of doctrinal ideas, they have this kind of corporatist outlook. This is what sells. This is what the students want. You know, this is what a consumerist approach to what education would look like. That mixed up with these certain ideological professoriates at universities is why we are where we are. Like, it's a combination of both of those factors. Right. So, I mean, it could start out as just very... um 
amoral in perspective. This is, you know, the, you know, what becomes the identitarian nomenclatura is just a bunch of people trying to create uh, some well-paying jobs and make sure they stay ensconced in those jobs and so on and so forth. And then it becomes a bit of an echo chamber. But but it's wonderful because everybody thinks the same way and everybody gets along and yeah. they just sort of a self-deal. If you allow me to self-deal, then I'll allow you to self-deal. And we'll just this just goes yeah. on. But the problem is, I mean, but ultimately, it seems to me this metastasizes into a sort of kleptocracy. And we've seen this uh, in states like my home state of Illinois, where you have sort of an institutionalized bureaucracy that self-deals at the expense of a population that's not represented at the table. And ultimately, you destroy the um, foundations of the society. And so that's what we're seeing happen in these cultural and educational institutions as well. One of the reasons this happens is because normal people don't really have a say. Imagine a state-funded university or a public-funded university. Now, universities functions usually about, you know, it, it's a hierarchical flow of knowledge. Like, it goes from the top to the bottom. But on the other hand, it's also tax-funded. I mean, we cannot imagine homeopathy, for example, or craniometry or any of those kind of pseudoscientific nonsense to be taught at public-funded universities, which are tax-funded, which are paid by you and I. But on the other hand, because these disciplines, like critical race theory, for example, is much popular in the corporate sector, and there is this section of you know, politicians and, uh, and ideologues at universities who are promoting these things, it's easier for them to kind of bypass the public opinion. I mean, if you ask the general public, they don't really have a say, as you pointed out. You know, I mean, most of the people who are toppling statues, for example, will be in a minority compared to the, you know, I mean, most of the most Americans, I would, I'm guessing, would not want to topple a statue of Lincoln, for example. Most British certainly don't want to topple a statue of Churchill. But that is, you know, it, it's a lopsided issue because, you know, when, when you check academia, they have this minority uh, concerns which are kind of like elevated uh, in a way because of the system, because of the bureaucrat, because of the mix of this bureaucracy and ideology. And that is creating a problem. The normal people don't really have a say on these things. Uh, when we come back with Sumantra Maitra, I want to talk about uh, another piece that you penned. Uh, this is about uh, the consequences of the so-called tech lash, the backlash against big tech. We'll uh, start there. Sumantra Maitra, doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined by Samantra Maitra. He's a doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the state of affairs in higher education. I want to turn our attention now to uh, big tech, particularly the social media platforms, and, and this piece that you penned at The Federalist about the global consequences of the so-called tech lash. And um, I, I wonder what they will be, a backlash against big tech, because you write, uh, uh, and, and borrowing from uh, another scholar, that Twitter banned Trump because it could, and that's all there is to it, that this is about uh, Twitter and uh, the other big tech companies not being afraid of conservatives, but uh, they are afraid of the uh, Jacobin left. They are afraid of totalitarian governments where they uh, make their in, in countries where they make a lot of money like China. And so they do pay attention right. to that. But if if uh, they don't care about those they're purging, then why will there be a backlash or a tech lash of any significance? <laughs> 
Two things to keep in mind here. First of all, the tech companies that we see, they operate not like normal companies in a free market. They operate as feudal powers in, a, in, a, in, a, in an oligarchy. So, you know, you have like a handful of companies which control every single aspect of your life, what you choose to buy, where you're buying tickets, what you, you know, share your data. Um, all of these things can be controlled. And naturally, it can lead to a situation where your choices will be manipulated by these companies. Now, if, if one studies the history of, you know, a big company, East India Company, for example, uh, at, at one point of time, the company interests kind of like uh, gets clashed with the interests of the sovereign state. You know, we still, for good or for bad, live in a system where the nation state is supreme. Now, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is all these companies, they don't really fear the conservatives. Part of the reason is because of conservative dogma. Conservatives don't like to use governmental power to crack down. And these companies, like any other feudal system in history, are afraid of power. That is the same logic, which is one of the reasons why they're afraid of someone protesting in Antifa, for example. They can protest in front of their, uh, their offices or someone in Chuck in China, which is a totalitarian system, they are not going to like, you know, they are not going to be like conservatives in the West, in the UK or US, saying, hey, we are not going to use government power to break these monopolies. They are going to break the monopolies. And because these companies are like feudal entities, they're afraid of that power. So uh, the thing that I pointed out in that, in that particular essay, from what I remember, I wrote like it was a month back, uh, was that the system, which is currently placed in US and UK, where these companies can dictate policies to, uh, to the conservatives will not happen in other systems. India will not allow that. China will not allow that. Russia is obviously not going to allow that. So at one point of time, we are going to see the historical norm of uh, big companies, tech companies or big feudal entities clashing with the sovereign state. And that is what we are going to see. If, they can, if these companies can stop the U.S. president from speaking, imagine the amount of power they buy. I mean, tomorrow, if they say Boris Johnson is a fascist, or Emmanuel Macron, France the fascist, and they stop, you know, communication of these uh, leaders, then that is obviously not how, what France or the United Kingdom would agree to. So eventually, one can plausibly argue that there might, there might be a possibility of the sovereign state coming in clash with these companies, and that's something which we need to be cognizant of. Well, so that's a, a bit of a trick bag from conservative, for conservatives you're describing. On the one hand, uh, the only uh, thing that these companies respond to is the threat of state power. On the other hand, Conservatives would have to stop being conservative if they were going to uh, use what is available to them, were they in power, to uh, uh, impose it on those tech companies. Uh, uh, you know, do you want to give up who you are in order to accomplish an end that you you seek? I mean, Not necessarily. Right. I want to I want to clarify a few things here. First of all, uh, this idea that free market can uh, determine politics is a modern conservative idea. A lot of you know old conservatives, for example, never believed that. They believed in state power. Benjamin Disraeli in the in the Victorian England, for example, who was one of the noted conservative philosophers. But even within the free market framework, even without using state power, conservatives can still use, uh, um, uh, you know, a kind of like the free market forces and competition yes. to stop. You know, one doesn't need to crack down and with, with a kind of like totalitarian intensity against these companies rather than, you know, pushing up other competition to, uh, to face these companies, for example. Um, I, think that's, I think that's one of the things that, I mean, okay, so take an example of the state laws that's happening in North Carolina 
uh, at the universities where uh, all they're doing is legislating and ensuring uh, freedom of speech at the universities. So something like that can happen. Like in Poland, for example, uh, the conservative government legislated that, no, we are not going to affect the tech companies, but what we are going to do is we are going to make them liable for lawsuits if they censor speech. So that's something which conservatives can do without the government crackdown. It doesn't mean that you need to be like China, for example. You could do a lot of things without being totalitarian. I think those are the things which one needs to you know, think about. So uh, you have this interesting... Um metaphor in your piece you you write the tech lashing censoring of the president a bunch of conservatives is similar to the king realizing during magna carta that it's the feudal lords who hold real power not him yeah so you know so so we're at runnymede uh, our, our 21st century version of runnymede so who's king john and uh, and who are uh, <laughs> you know who are those that are uh, establishing uh, the rights under the magna carta I that, think I think uh, well, <laughs> well, it, it was metaphorical, as you mentioned. Yeah. But uh, to, to, to take it further from there, I think the idea is uh, deleting of Trump's account from Twitter was kind of like a, a, a marking point, which would go down in history. I think that was the first time, and there was a research that came out. I, I, I don't exactly remember. But it recently came out in the Royal Institute of International Affairs, saying that hey, this was probably something which was gone too far. Um, if you have Amazon, if you have Google, Twitter, Facebook, Apple, five companies, uh, which are the five biggest companies which can decide literally whether you can get credit cards or not, uh, depending on your social media quotes, I think those are mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the modern version of feudal lords. Now, whether and, 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 the, and the deletion of Trump's Twitter account was kind of like a, a, a red line, so to speak, uh, showing that how these companies have so much power, whether, you know, that would lead to some kind of like understanding of in the conservatives about doing something about it or they're just going to keep on talking about it. it's not something which i can predict i mean obviously but 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 that is that is the red line and these are the companies which are kind of like a modern version of the of the feudal lords i suppose he is samantra matra doctoral scholar at the university of nottingham school of politics and international relations thanks so much for joining us appreciate it thank you so much thanks for your time take care Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com.